Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Dr. Bernard Beitman is the first psychiatrist since Carl Jung to systematize the study of coincidences. Today I'll be asking him about a book he has written, Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. Dr. Bernard Beitman is a graduate of Yale Medical School. He did his psychiatric residency at Stanford University. He was chair of psychiatry at the University of Missouri-Columbia Medical School for 17 years. He's co-author of an award-winning book, Learning Psychotherapy. Bernard Beitman, welcome. Thank you very much, Nancy. Pleasure to be with you. Well, the title of your book, Meaningful Coincidences, you include a lot of stories about coincidences. And the yeah. one I would like you to tell us about first appeared on Radiolab, which our station carried, NPR stations carried Radiolab. And it was the story you label as balloon story. What happened that um, made this uh, an important coincidence? Uh, it was important enough for, for Radiolab to look at it, that's for sure. And what Radiolab tried to do, if you if you heard it, was try to explain it by um, randomness, which was is really hard to do on this one. Uh, so I'll tell I'll tell the story. Um, it's it's in the chapter of my book, Meaningful Coincidences, uh, entitled Six Puzzling Coincidences. And this one is, uh, yes, as you mentioned, called The Balloon Story. And it's, and it's one of the most iconic of meaningful coincidences. And it involves the story of Laura Buxton's balloon. And as you'll see, it illustrates that what you're looking for is sometimes looking for you. And this balloon story began in June of 2001 when 10-year-old Laura Buxton of Staffordshire, England, was attending her grandparents' golden wedding anniversary. She was in need of a friend. Her grandfather, you know how grandparents love their grandchildren. Oh, yeah. And then she, her grandfather, felt so bad at this, at this celebration of his, uh, of his wedding that, she, that his granddaughter could not find a friend. So he thought maybe he could help her find a pen pal by writing her address on a label with the message, please return to Laura Buxton. They attached that message to a helium balloon that was part of the ceremony and sent that balloon off into the sky. Well, a farmer in Milton, Lyborn, Wiltshire, about 100 and 40 miles away, 140 miles away, pulled the same balloon out of a hedge that separated his pastures from his neighbors. He noticed the name written on it, Laura Buxton, and since that was the name of his neighbor's daughter, he brought the balloon to her. The Laura Buxton from Milton Lyborn was also 10 years old, and then wrote to the Laura Buxton in Staffordshire. And as this was such an interesting coincidence, their parents arranged for them to meet. Now, of all the things that happened in here, the second most important one is that the parents decided that they would get the girls together. Nothing would have happened had they not, do that, had they not done that. When the girls met, they were wearing similar clothes and discovered that they had three similar pets, including three-year-old black Labrador retrievers. The girls became close friends, it has been documented since they met. Uh, they went to the same school, college, and they talked together about how it happened. And they could only describe it, at least sometimes, as a lucky wind. The the, the NPR radio lab guys had a lot of trouble with this. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but they really had to stretch to come up with uh, the idea, which probability people think about, statisticians think about, something they call the law of very large numbers. 
Now, there really is no such law as the very uh, law of very large numbers. It's a trick on words statisticians play. Law means it's, you know, you've, it, you've kind of proven it unless you're in court. That's something else. Not legal law. This is like law of the way things work in science. There is a law called the law of large numbers. That has been shown to be true both by experiment and by mathematical procedures. It has to do with it if you flip enough coins, flip enough coins enough times, they're going to approximate 50% heads and 50% tails. So the more numbers you have of flips, the closer you'll get to the, the, the accurate number of what the percentage is. There is no such mathematical proof or any experimental proof of the law of very large numbers. It was made up by a Stanford statistician who in his previous life had been a magician, <laughs> which uh, thank you for laughing at that because I think it's pretty funny. He pulled that one out of his hat uh, to make it into a law. It wasn't really, it wasn't really a law, but this now gets quoted kind of regularly among statisticians to say, and others that say, that say that a reasonable idea that in very large populations, weird stuff is, is likely to happen. My guest is psychiatrist, Dr. Bernard Beitman, and he has written a book about coincidences, meaningful coincidences, how and why synchronicity and serendipity happen. One thing that surprised me in the process of reading your book is how many books have been written on this subject of coincidences. It seems like there's an awful lot of material, but this subject um, uh, continues that uh, conventional science denies these things are, are true, Dr. The myth of Sisyphus came to mind. <laughs> you are kind of pushing that boulder up a hill in your, um, I don't know if it's a quest, to make this subject more acceptable to conventional science. Is Am I accurate in that view? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a recovering academic, as you can tell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I still have a, uh, a an affinity for academia and as a place where uh, ideas can be tested, uh, but they don't. They, yeah, you're you're right. It's a it's it's a tough haul to be able to get them to pay attention. And part of the way I'm doing that is writing a book that is fairly scientific in its uh, in its ideas. Meaning that if you're trying to start a new science, which I am, um, you have to start with description. A new science begins with description. You can't make up theories unless you know what you're making theories up about. And this is a subject which has not been organized. There's lots of books about meaningful coincidences. Not rare, none of them are called meaningful coincidences. It's usually, they usually have synchronicity or serendipity in the title or coincidence in the title, but not meaningful. And not too many that title themselves coincidences because the word serendipity is kind of popular and synchronicity even more so. Mm -hmm. But they tend to have, since I imagine you've written, read a few of them, uh, they tend to be more stories, more collections of stories where I got a lot of my stories. And some of them are theoretical uh, and don't have much stories. But the major problem in the theoretical ones is there is a tendency to want to have one cause, one explanation for them. So I break that one open in my book on meaningful coincidences by suggesting there are multiple ways of thinking about how meaningful coincidence takes place. And it may be, uh, maybe through help talking with you and I'm on a lot of other podcasts where maybe it'll get the attention of someone uh, who will then have get the attention of someone who might be interested in uh, doing more research with it. Well, I want to mention a label that has been used for quite a while, and that's the Greek letter psi. Yes. And even though we don't really know how it works, can you explain to listeners, if they're not familiar with this psi as a label for what we're talking about, what is psi? Uh, that's a psi. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. 
Uh, I play with <laughs> words, uh, and they are um, words are puns are coincidences, especially words that sound the same that have different meanings to them. And and when I make the that that's the sound of a sigh, it's really about something that you <laughs> can't see but you can hear, and and that's very true. Well, I'm of- gonna. I'm going to relay this one you just did to my fellow <laughs> punsters because I uh, know several people that we enjoy puns. So that's a good one. Okay, oh, excuse well, me I, <laughs> I got I got a bunch of them. So uh, I'm glad you I'm glad you appreciate them. I'm they're, forewarned. They're, <laughs> you're forewarned. We may now that you've started me thinking. Well, who knows what we'll run into because we may run into another one. Uh, okay. the, the really good um, puns are ones where the, they feed off of each other, where one says something about the other. And in, in this, this breathing aside, you don't see it, but you have to hear it. You can see somebody making a facial expression, but the sigh is really a sound and it's a quiet sound. And that's true of the PSI kind of sigh, uh, where you're, you get a feeling of knowing something without knowing how you know it, not in the very rational way. It's called anomalous knowing or anomalous information in people who study it scientifically. So you know something somehow without going through the usual sensory channels of vision and and hearing and touch and taste and smell. Uh, You know it some other way, and it's generally under the category of intuition, that this information comes in, but to, intuition is a broad, uh, broad planet that we haven't really explored enough, and there's a lot to it. And one of the the, the things in intuition is this psi, and psi is includes telepathy, the ability to know the thought of another person without that person saying anything, and usually at a distance. Clairvoyance, the the ability uh, to see something happening at a distance and a precognition that is knowing something is going to happen that hasn't happened yet. Also included sometimes is psychokinesis, the ability to make objects in the world respond to one's own thoughts. Well, now, these things that you've just been mentioning, they're, these capacities that people have are well documented. We have the documents to that. yeah, these things really happen, but they aren't supported by solid lab research. And that's why they get rejected by uh, sincere but <laughs> scientists, are, I guess is the word. They are, they are supported by laboratory research. Uh, there was a paper in the American Psychologist a couple of years ago that reviewed the laboratory research on uh, psi phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that, that it is supported by solid lab research, but people like you mentioned Radio Lab, they try to I, almost make excuses for, no, no, this, this can't be. Yes, yes. And my favorite version of that is a paper was submitted to a, a good journal, uh, and the, the reviewer said the statistics were well done, the the data analysis was well done. The conclusions are, uh, are correct based on the data analysis, but I reject the results because I don't believe them. And that's what you're up against when you write a book like this. Yes. Uh, yeah. Trying in, in an attempt to explain how and why these things happen. Well, you're getting to the title of my book, aren't you? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yes. Meaningful Coincidences, <laughs> How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. It's and, star- Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Well, another um, something that you bring out in your book, uh, we all know that Alexander Graham Bell discovered the telephone, but that's not the whole picture. We don't hear about this other guy who also invented the telephone. So you bring out in your book, these simultaneous discoveries and inventions. What are some of these examples of simultaneous discoveries and inventions, Doctor? Well, Martin? you just you just mentioned one that's a lot of fun, uh, and, and be, partly because it took place on Valentine's Day uh, in 1976. So it's kind of like uh, a heart thing, um, and it was Elisha Gray and uh, along with Alexander Graham Bell's l- lawyer, both two lawyers 
filed a patent with a similar diagram on that day, a patent for what was described as an application for on the harmonic telegraph, which included <laughs> its use for transmitting vocal sounds. So these two lawyers for Elisha Gray and one for and for Alexander Graham Bell on February 14th in the same office, in a patent office at the, on the same day. Um, that's uh, quite coincidental. And then there's a lot of arguments about did they cheat from each other, steal from each other. <laughs> they really couldn't figure it out because it was such an important financial legal thing that eventually somehow, and I, I don't know the full story, uh, Alexander Graham Bell won. So we have uh, the Bell Network. We had the Bell Network. And Elisha Gray didn't get anything out of it from what I know. But there are zillions of stories like this, or at least lots of them. And I can tell you a few if you want to hear them. Yeah, I would. And you know what else, too, that often when uh, people are give, being given credit for some discovery, um, we're learning more and more that in the background, there was a woman contributing to this discovery, this invention, and she hasn't gotten credit. Well, the best example of that to me is the discovery of penicillin and its use as an antibiotic in World War II. That's one uh, excellent example. The guys who participated in finding uh, the penicillin strain, and also created the, the ability to uh, to mass market and ma mass produce it. All got the Nobel Prize. Three of them got the Nobel Prize. But uh, a person who ended up being called Moly Mary, who made the final dis discovery that would have been necessary, that was necessary to make a full uh, production of penicillin possible, just gets called a kind of a nasty name. Mo moldy mary and i don't know do you know other examples of that because that's the best one i know well there was a movie made about the women in the background this is not exactly the same thing um who were mathematicians and hidden figures they were hidden they were women they were black women and uh, their contribution was ignored i don't think just right offhand of uh, discoveries and inventions that well uh, marie curie did get credit she yes, did. She did. So she was kind of the exception to what we're talking about. And well, there's a there's a variation mm -hmm. on that on that theme, Nancy. That um, often the person who gets the credit isn't the one who came up with the idea. Uh, mm -hmm. Somebody mm -hmm. else came up with it earlier. Uh, and that's kind of true with evolution. Uh, it was Darwin got the credit. Wallace wrote the same thing around the same time. Another mm. simultaneous discovery, but. Uh, but uh, Darwin got the presentation out there, so he got the he got the credit. Yeah, everybody knows his name, but not the other guy. Not yeah. the other guy. Yeah. My guest is psychiatrist Dr. Bernard Beichmann, and his book is Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio, I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, psychiatrist Dr. Bernard Beitman, who has written a book, Meaningful Coincidences. And you say that there are practical uses of coincidences, and I don't think people that would occur to people, hmm, I can use coincidences? So how can we use coincidences if they occur in our life? How can we use that? Well, that's... A major thrust of my book uh, 
is how you can use them because they're practical. Uh, throughout history, human beings have used uh, coincidences as a way to figure out how reality works. A great many scientific discoveries have been a result of what might be called happy accidents, where people just find something that they weren't looking for, or find something what, about what they were looking for, but in a way they didn't expect. And that was true of the discovery of penicillin, where Alexander Graham, where, excuse me, where Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, I'll get to Alexander, <laughs> too many Alexanders for this, per, this person's mind. Uh, this was a researcher in, uh, in, Lo in London in, uh, in 1921, uh, and was able to uh, notice that on a petri dish that he had uh, had some bacteria growing, um, that when he had some nasal drippings um, from his that accidentally fell on this growing um, bacteria on the in the petri dish, there created a, a hazel a, a halo of inhibition, uh, which uh, made which was a way of saying that um, the the bacteria were were uh, killed by the nasal drippings. So there's something in uh, the nasal drippings that were, that killed the bacteria. But there were, how do you harvest enough of this lysozyme from people's noses to be able to be an antibiotic? He, he didn't have the ability to do that. Uh, in 1928, he returned from uh, a vacation and because of just the nature of the way he was, he uh, had left a lot of Petri dishes in his sink um, for the three weeks he was gone. And um, when he came back to look at what was in his sink, uh, he noticed that he noticed that same uh, halo of inhibition in his in one of and some of the petri dishes in his sink and he noticed that there was a golden fuzz around each of these halos of inhibition uh, that turned out to be what he called um, penicillin mold so the pen, so because he had seen this halo of inhibition before he was able to recognize that the mold was probably killing the bacteria also. So, but he didn't, he didn't design an experiment to come up with that finding. He did it by accident. And so a lot of times human beings discover things by accident. And this was Alexander Fleming who got the Nobel Prize for having done this. But it wasn't enough. He, they had to figure out that it really did kill bacteria. And two other men uh, came to work with him and were able to show that it did kill bacteria in mice and in human beings. But then they needed to have enough of it to mass produce it to help with the injuries of soldiers in World War II uh, on and American soldiers and English soldiers, because that's where a lot of death came from. It wasn't just the getting killed mm -hmm. by a, a bullet. It was like the infections. So they produce, how would they produce enough? Well, they sent army all around the world to find uh, more, more penicillin mold uh, that produced a lot of penicillin. And so this was in Peoria, Illinois, where they were trying to be able to grow the mold in something called uh, corn liquor. That was a great mold uh, place, great place for mold to grow. And one of the lab assistants went down to the market at uh, in Peoria, uh, farmers market, and she saw uh, a cantaloupe with this golden. Um, fuzz growing on this golden mold going on and she brought it back to the lab and that was that was mary from the lab <laughs> mary made the discovery of the mold serendipitously by accident but she was looking she was aware that what that what was needed so everybody went all over the world she found one right at home in the farmer's market in peoria and just as I mentioned earlier, did not get any recognition for it. So we're giving her recognition now. And this is Dr. Bernard Beitman. His book is Meaningful Coincidences. And I don't think people uh, ever considered the fact that there are practical uses for coincidences. 
and what just happened now, just by accident, mold was discovered. Um, what are some other examples of practical uses of coincidences? They are practical in your life. I created, with the help of some research assistants, the Weird Coincidence Survey, which you can take on my website, which is called coincider.com, C-O-N-I-N-C-I-D-E-R.com. And a coincider is someone who experiences lots of coincidences. So we use this to try to find out what are the most common coincidences that people experience. And one of them is being in the right place at the right time. And somehow we get to where we need to be without really planning to be there. It's kind of an accident. I call it, uh, in one of the chapters, I call it human GPS, that we can somehow intuitively, and they're using, it uses side capacities to be able to get to where we need to be. For, for example, uh, a graduate student had finished his graduate work and uh, working on his PhD, but needed a job. And he worked, he looked around a lot, uh, but he couldn't find one that fit with what he'd been studying. Uh, so one day he reluctantly, and this is important, you do something that you wouldn't <laughs> ordinarily do. He reluctantly went to the wedding of his ex-girlfriend. You know, that's a tough thing to do. <laughs> yes. So he said, okay, I went. So he, he did it the way many of us might do. He showed up late and enough time for the dinner and not for the ceremony and late to the dinner. And there was one seat left in the place. And so he sat down and this is the key part of it. He started a conversation with someone. There can be a coincidence ready to happen that's meaningful to you, but you've got to act. I like to say the dog that trots about finds the bone. You've got to do something. And so he talked to the person next to him who happened to be on the faculty at the university. And it turned out the guy at the faculty of the university needed a guy to work for him with the talents and capacities that the guy I'm telling you about had. He got a job. Well, you know, I think people who um, might not believe in this size stuff that you're talking about, what might label some people as being lucky, you know, that guy, he's just lucky, or some other person, eh, they're unlucky. And so I think we might look at lucky people a little more differently after reading your book. You think so? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, lucky is, uh, is a name for this. Um, and part of being lucky and this is an important part of uh, making coincidences happen, is you have to believe that you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, perhaps you're familiar with the uh, experiment of a guy who doesn't believe in Psi, but it's a great uh, illustration of what luck it can be, which is if you think you're lucky, you'll get lucky. It just compounds itself. And the, and the study is something like uh, took place in London at a coffee shop where, put down, where he put down a... Um, on the floor of the coffee shop, uh, let's say a 20 pound note and, and divided people into two groups, those who thought of themselves as lucky and those who thought of themselves as unlucky. Uh, and there was, he put a businessman sitting in one of the, the tables uh, there just working on stuff and not talking with anybody. So the people who were thought themselves as lucky uh, saw the money on the floor, picked it up, and somehow got themselves over to the businessman to begin talking about what possibilities they might have. The unlucky people didn't see the money and, of course, did not talk to the businessman. You, a lucky person believes that something might happen because if you don't believe it might happen, you're reducing the likelihood of finding the way it could happen. Well, I think people might have trouble. Now, here's another thing you bring up in your book. You talk about the morphic field hypothesis. And um, I don't know that people ever made these connections that you make in your book about people who share a strong morphic field. So uh, what is a morphic field? Well, thanks for reading the book. I mean, that doesn't <laughs> happen all the time. And what I listed in that section 
was uh, some of the many explanations for things like telepathy, which Rupert Sheldrake, who invented mm -hmm. the idea of morphic fields, uh, suggests can happen. Uh, I'm not trying, I don't try to tell people how it works until I know what their belief systems are. Are they open to thinking about the way reality works beyond randomness, as well as beyond God, where God makes it happen? Are there some other ways to think about explanations? And I have in there also chaos and complexity uh, models for how things might work, as well as my own concept of the psychosphere, our mental atmosphere. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Rupert's got the right idea. I think his morphic fields are subsets of the psychosphere, but these are the ways I think about them. But what I have to start with where anybody who's thinking about this believes. If you believe in, in it's random or God, then those two possibilities eliminate your own responsibility for creating a coincidence because a coincidence once explained is no longer a coincidence. Well, um, as an example, uh, three of my favorite musicians, a, uh, I guess you'd say jazz musicians, they play off each other and they are such a joy to listen to. And I think you know a jazz musician who is, I guess is the term intuitive, of course. His name's John Durth, and yeah, I coincidentally ran into him the other day having dinner <laughs> with some other people. I was glad to see him. I mean, I, he uh, he loves to say to people when there's a coincidence that happens to him, oh, that's Bernie. Uh, and, and some people do that because I, I alert people to the possibility of coincidences. Jazz music is uh, both structured and unstructured. But the unstructured part of it is that you feed off of each other's, not just what a note you just heard, but with notes they are about to play. You can anticipate what the other person is going to do and then put your thing in knowing somehow, intuitively we'll call it, uh, that you're gonna fit in with what that other person has just, will just will, is doing in the next moment. I do that at dance uh, and it's so much fun. Uh, I, I do a, a, a kind of, it's called, it's kind of a dance improv, same idea, where you just dance how you feel with the music. And oh, so yeah. many times, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the dancers I like to watch. I like to watch those dancers who are feeling the music. You got it. In sync with the music. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what happens with me. I am I become the music almost. Yeah, it's the it's and I can begin I can anticipate. It's kind of fun and surprising just where how the beat might change. But then I get mad when I mm -hmm. when I'm wrong about it because I get it and then I try to like uh, <laughs> fill in the space, which is also part of the fun of it. It's like do something a little different when it's something happened that I didn't expect to have happen but being in the, and that's still part of being with the music when you know, when it doesn't happen you're still with it not happening with the way you think it's it's and people do that in conversation uh they do that in in groups that are close to each other particularly friends they they without knowing it they begin to pick up what the other where the other person's going and can respond to that as it's happening well, you know, sometimes people, here's another uh, group where the morphic field is applicable. Um, a lot of times people talk about a team having chemistry. This team is successful. They've got team chemistry. And I think you would say they share a strong morphic field. I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, please don't confuse me with, with Rupert Sheldrake. You might. You might oh, uh, no. You want, might want to get him on your show because he is... <laughs> determined to, to be able to explain um, a lot of phenomena with morphic resonance. And he's got a point. Um, it's really, uh, there's something about once a new pattern gets established, this the species of which that pattern has, from which that pattern has emerged, begin to learn that pattern more easily as time goes on. It's as if nature has a memory. Uh, people who resonate with each other is something that's so important to, uh, to me and my relationships with other people, and it particularly happens on the dance floor. Uh, and I, I, there I'm tuning into 
to energy fields in the present, energy fields in the present, where somehow another person and I vibrate, resonate on, a fre on frequencies or harmonies that are compatible. It might not be the same frequency, but it's a harmonic variation on it so that it feels so good to dance with you. It feels so good to hug with you. And it happens every time because they, they, each of us has a, a, an energy field signature, I call it, that is kind of like a fingerprint that is like fits with other people in a beautiful way. Uh, I, a, friend, a good friend of mine, and I was sitting in the car and she was, and she put her hand over where my energy field might be. And then next to hers. And she said, it's the same thing. It's the same energy that we have together. It was the same, not a different harmonic. And, and, and it's a one, it, it continues to happen when we're together. After a break, I'll be back with Dr. Beitman to continue our conversation about synchronicity and serendipity. Meaningful Coincidences. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with a psychiatrist who has written a book about coincidences. Well, you mentioned in your book that uh, this information can be transmitted, but you also, something that I hadn't thought about, that group members remain bonded even after they separate. Yes. There's that connection. Yes, 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 yes. What do you think about that? Well, I hadn't thought about it, but I can see how that would work. Um, yeah, that's a morphic field idea. That, that's, a, that's from Rupert Sheldrake's work, that you get those uh, football players that played together or these jazz musicians that played together. There's still somehow a connection between them. But how is that connection manifested? Sometimes it's, connect, it's, it's manifested through uh, telepathic recognition for example, uh, one of the most common coincidences uh, people report on the Weird Coincidence Survey is uh, thinking of someone and uh, having that person contact them. And that's mm -hmm. often... Oh, yeah. Person phone rings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Phone rings, yeah, text message. And the, the, the fun ones are ones that you haven't heard from that person for five years. Mm -hmm. And it's not your mother calling at three o'clock every day. It's, uh, yeah. it, it, oh, you know who it is. And there are in-between ones. Yeah, it's, those that happen more commonly with people who have been bonded. Speaking of bonding, I became a fan of Rupert Sheldrake when I read about his studies of dogs who know when their owners are coming home. Yes. And the little dog will run to the window, and he tried all sorts of ways of, uh, you might say, tricking the dog. Yeah. And the dog still knew. Yeah. And yeah. I thought maybe you might mention uh, Rupert Sheldrake's study with uh, dogs and their owners. In your well, you, just, you just described it well <laughs> enough, I think. Uh, it, it, the, there are other things with dogs and their owners uh, that are very real. Uh, person I uh, was interviewed with the other day. Uh, was talking about how his dog um, anticipates what he's going to do. So his dog mm -hmm, can be in mm -hmm. the room sitting there waiting for what he's going to do in that room. And he does it pretty regularly. They can't talk. They just do bark, bark, bark uh, or snivel or something. And, and 
do nonverbals. We can talk, but they can communicate with us and they can observe us just like kids observe adults much more than adults ever think they do and see what they're going to do the kids can't say the words but they're picking up the information i saw that with my three-year-old granddaughter uh, when i visited her the couple of weeks ago when she when i was singing to her with the grandmother from the other side of the family and we were singing somewhere over the rainbow to her alternating lines of the song uh i'd sing two lines and and jane would sing two lines and so we were playing off of each other but i could see rosie sitting on the couch observing us and taking it all in never being able to describe it in words but putting the image of it in her mind and i think that's what uh, dogs can do they can pick up a lot more than what they can ever articulate so uh, when we when you talk about families sharing a morphic field, that would include canine members of families as well as human members of a family. And plants. Yes. Uh, there, there's a whole book, The Secret Life of Plants. Mm -hmm. You make the point uh, in your, this is a slightly different subject, that um, we tell other people what we need to hear. And what might be an example of that? <laughs> uh, well it really happens in psychotherapy pretty obviously i'm a therapist and one of the ways of being uh one of the benefits of being a therapist is it's it's an only way to be in therapy without having to be the patient <laughs> and one of the ways that happens is the patients want to help us too so we can help them better but but i've been noticing lately that i've been like I've been coaching people on being assertive and <laughs> and uh, I can see what's coming <laughs> and I, I had to talk to my therapist about an incident uh, with somebody at an Airbnb who criticized me for small reasons and I, my response was kind of tepid we'll say or timid and she says well you, you didn't stand up for yourself did you <laughs> and i tell people to read books on assertiveness and stuff like that so i i am ha and then i needed to be more assertive with uh, somebody who was interviewing me the, uh, yesterday uh and, and then i was more assertive directly today with somebody who was i was interviewing on my podcast who was being a little too dominant for what we were talking about and i'll say quite dominant so I confronted him about it. It wasn't easy. So I'm teaching my patients how to be assertive and learning how to be assertive myself. Well, speaking of therapy, you make the point that synchronicity can aid therapy. Yeah. How is that so? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and we have some data um, to indicate that. And I have a Psychology Today blog that um, summarizes that the magazine now might mention psychology today is the name of a magazine. Mm -hmm. And this is a blog that's online, uh, mm -hmm. and not the magazine itself. And you can get no. to it by putting connecting with coincidence in your web browser. And you'll also come up with my podcast also called connecting with coincidence. And in there is a is a summary of re research uh, in, this, uh, in synchronicity and psychotherapy. And the title of it is synchronicity, uh, re research shows that synchronicity can aid psychotherapy, can help psychotherapy. Uh, it is probably the, uh, the, in the top 10 of popular posts, which really surprised me. Uh, on the, I have a, about a million, million views of, of my posts there. And this one got 45, 46,000. Is that was a pretty popular post. So people are interested in the data that suggests synchronicity can aid in psychotherapy. And I, I suppose you'll want to hear an example or two of yes. that. <laughs> How did I guess? <laughs> you know, that was You're telepathic. Uh, yeah. Or I, I'm getting, I'm learning you a little a bit. Clairvoyant. <laughs> yeah. We don't have, we got to go to the regular reasons before we go to those. That, that's yes. okay. part of what I try to be able to tell people to do yes. is look for the conventional explanations first, then mm -hmm. go to uh, maybe the more unconventional explanations. Mm -hmm. I, I had a I had a patient who was um, 
suicidal when I first met her. She's about 22. Um, and she lived in a spirit world because it was nicer than regular reality. Uh, and she wanted to join the spirit world. So uh, she made a suicide attempt in her old bedroom of her parents' house and got blood all over the place. And they had to like get rid of the rug and all kinds of things they had to do, put her in the hospital. And, and this is right after I started with her. So I wasn't too happy with that. Uh, what did I do? What could I have done? But she survived. And then she came back to therapy and she says, well, I survived. I guess I got to do something about living here. Well, we worked for quite a while. I mean, we really liked each other and I really liked her. She was a very special soul, really, uh, and very, very special. And one day, because uh, uh, we like to play with each other a little bit too in therapy, because uh, I like to make therapy fun for both of us because it should be as fun and learning go together. So I, I, I purchased these uh, glasses uh, with um, kind of uh, very um, sparkly blue frames. Uh, They're really kind of, I really liked them as kind of rock and roll kind of uh, blue. And I sat at my desk with my back to her uh, with, the, with the glasses on my desk and I put the glasses on and turned around to surprise her with my blue glasses. And uh, for the first time in all the sessions we had, she was wearing glasses too. <laughs> so I said, what, what, what's, what's with you wearing glasses? And this is the key phrase. She just said, I felt the urge to do it. <gasps> and that's, that's telepathy and clear and precognition. She, we were connected enough for her to have intuitively picked up that I was doing something with glasses. So she was going to do it too. My guest is psychiatrist, Dr. Bernard Beitman, and he has written a book, Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. Now, there's a point you make in your book that I was delighted to see because I noticed young children, I mean, we all noticed that young children are very curious and we send them off to school and I think we present them with things they're not curious about and they lose your curiosity. Now, this is just my my view of it, but you say that curious people are happier people, and how is that the case? Because being curious creates wonder sometimes, and wonder uh, sparks the imagination. And to be able to be curious and wonder and imagine expands one's sense of self instead of the restricted view that men, that school often tries to put people into. So you're happier because you're expressing who you are more easily. Well, uh, I find that people who have a curiosity are interesting people because they have a wide variety of interests. If they come across something they're not very familiar with, they explore it. And uh, I appreciate their curiosity because it enlivens my curiosity. Yes. And I, as, as you have read in my book, one of the practical uses of meaningful coincidences is to exercise the mind. The mind needs exercising just as the body does. And if you don't exercise your mind, it's not going to, you're not going to, you're going to lose some of the capacity. And mind is a, the mind and brain are kind of like a muscle in that way. And coincidences make me curious and they make people who are interested in them curious. They ask the two fundamental questions of a meaningful coincidence. There are two meanings to a meaningful coincidence. One is what does it mean for me, for my future, for my what's going on with me now they are not commands but they are guideposts about what to be able to do and the other meaning of meaning is how can i explain it because these explanations help us understand how reality works well um one thing that you encourage people to do is to write about these coincidences and I think they might not see patterns if they say, oh, well, that happened, or I dreamed that, or this happened. But if they write them down or tell them, I think it uh, they 
um, learn more from the experience, if I want to put it that way. So um, as a parting uh, suggestion, do you think listeners would uh, benefit from writing their coincidence stories? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just set me up on that one. And you, yeah, you agreed with it. And I'm with you on that <laughs> one. The, um, the idea uh, is expressed in, in this little poem. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. People, people keep dream diaries to see the patterns in their dreams. Coincidences are very much like dreams. You easily forget them. And so you can see patterns in them when you write them down. Even if you write it, even if you've just had one, you may forget it just like a dream when you wake up. You have to write it down to be able to do that. And that's why I suggest you do that. I'm working on a, a next book, which is uh, the story of my life in coincidence, tell in coincidences. And I've seen patterns just by writing my life history uh, as told through coincidences. And that's my personal experience, but plenty of other people find patterns that they wouldn't otherwise see just as they might if they write down dreams, if they write down mm -hmm. their meaningful coincidences. Yeah. And just personally, I, before I started law school, that fall before I, school began, I started writing down dreams and I was shocked when I looked back and saw there was a pattern to them. So I think listeners will, uh, would enjoy taking up you, uh, taking your suggestion and following up on at least telling if they don't want to write it down, telling these coincidences. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the founder of the coincidence project yes. and, and our, one of our major uh, intents is to encourage people to tell each other their coincidence stories. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Beitman, about coincidences. And um, I will leave listeners with the title of your book, Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. The author is Dr. Bernard Beitman. Thank you, Dr. Beitman. You're welcome. This was a lovely, lovely interview. Thank you, Nancy. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.